Hello and welcome to High Key Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today I will finally, belatedly, at long last, be wrapping up the intro episodes of this season. And finally, next time, we will be talking all about Alexander the Great. But first, a few updates and maybe an apology or two. So sorry for no episode last month and sort of the erratic schedule lately. Got a new job. started that late September. I was traveling. Second week I was there. Had to travel last week as well. Then I had like a cold. Took me a little bit to settle in to the new routine. Get used to having a job that had a little bit more to do during the day than my old job. But now I got the new schedule mastered. New comfort level there. Very excited about the new job. And I'm ready to resume recording on a good schedule and, you know, crush this nonsense once again. So we're going to finish this episode. We're going to zoom through it a little bit. Kind of, you know, jetpacking around Philip's life a little bit. More than we have been in the previous episodes. The next week, we are going to do a brief episode covering Alexander the Great's life very briefly. Not breaking him down in his many facets, just like... Here's an overview of everything he did in his life. Fortunately, he didn't live that long, so, you know, not too much to do there. And then from there is when I'll be breaking down each little thing about him. So next week, Alexander briefly is what I'm calling that, and then Alexander the heir. The breakdown episodes will be more or less chronological, but I wanted to give an actual chronological overview of his life before we get into everything. It just felt better to me so that you would know exactly what's going on, more or less. But yeah, let's get into it. Quick refresher, last two episodes dealt with Philip II rising to the throne and then the moves he took in the first few years of his reign that allowed him to rapidly expand the power, wealth, and stability of his nation and his influence. He also pissed off Athens, provoked them into a war, outsmarted them a few times, and had gotten ready, gotten to a stage where he was able to enter Greek politics, Greek warfare in a whole new stage than we'd seen before from him. He'd also been married a bunch of times and had at least two sons that we know of, one of those obviously being Alexander, the other being Eridaeus, who we will hear about more a little bit later. He had a few daughters, a few other kids on the way, a few more marriages to happen we'll hear about here. We also know from where we left off his general Parmenio, best general in his army, and a huge player going forward. He had just defeated the Illyrians in battle. Philip's horse had just won in the Olympic Games, and his wife Olympias had just given birth to his son, Alexander. And so that's where things stood last time we spoke, and where things stood for Philip in 356 BCE. His son Alexander had just been born, and his nation had just been, his nation had transformed by him into a formidable power. They've come to conquer or dominate several of their neighbors and had thoroughly outwitted Athens at every turn thus far. He had a string of uninterrupted victories and only time would tell if that were to remain so. As I'm sure you all recall, you lovely listeners, Philip was by far the most powerful Macedonian king in recent history and perhaps in all of Macedonian history to this point and his unbroken success had given him a lot of sway over the nobles of Upper Macedonia, binding both them as well as his army to him. It is also important to remember that it is very likely that this loyalty was newfound and thus quite conditional on his success. 
and the prestige and wealth he was able to not only attain for himself, but then bestow to those who supported him. In 355 BCE, we don't know much about what Philip was getting up to in 355 BCE, but it's very likely that he secured some of his holdings, you know, some of his newly gotten gains, and then campaigned in the surrounding areas of Macedonia to strengthen his newfound positions. We do know that late in 355 BCE, he began a, sa- began a siege of Methany, which, if you recall last time I struggled to pronounce, I did look it up, that is how it is pronounced. Anyway, Methany was the last of the Athenian strongholds in the region, and it's where they had based their last attempt to take Amphipolis, which we talked about last episode, it's just like, former colony of Athens is thorn in Athenian-Macedonian relations going forward. Methany was the most difficult siege of Philip's career thus far, and he pretty famously lost an eye during this battle. He was likely shot in the face with an arrow, and this has of course caused no shortage of pain for him the remainder of his life, but by some miracle, his surgeon, Critobolus, saved the king and removed the arrow without horribly disfiguring him, I guess, but he did lose the eye, obviously. So, you know, mixed results there, I would say. Blinded in that eye, obviously lost the eye, not ideal. The siege wore on for some months, and the fact that Philip was able to persevere through this injury, keep his army supplied during the winter months, Both of these testified to his skills as a commander and the logistical skills of his organization and his grit. You know, a lot of determination on this guy. Eventually, when no force came from Athens to aid the city, you know, they're begging for help, Methany capitulates to Philip, and despite the brutality inherent in ancient siegecraft and the fact that he had lost an eye in the siege, Philip was actually pretty lenient in his treatment of the city. And this is something of a trend for him, you know, compared to other, like his contemporaries at least. Pretty great look for him in this case. All of the citizens of Methany were allowed to leave the city with their lives. They were not enslaved. And they could only bring with them what they could carry on their back. What's a pretty decent deal, all things considered, for the ancient world. Now, there were some already held in slavery in Methany, and they were not afforded this same privilege. Most likely, they became the plunder of Philip and his men, and the city ceased to exist as a political entity, and then was destroyed, with its lands distributed to the companions of Philip. So, not great. So, here we are, we're five years into Philip's reign, and he has made Macedon quite the force to be reckoned with. He's enlarged the borders, at least to their largest historical limit, and they have much more, they have a much higher resource base and manpower to draw from. And he has his northern border more secure than it's ever been, and his coastline is secure, which makes it harder for the Athenians to attack him because, you know, they're a naval power, his naval side of things, pretty secure. And he also built himself a little flotilla of ships to harass the Athenians and raid their shipping lines. Now, we don't have a great deal of accounting for how he spent his time for a lot of his life. We did the big events, you know, we did the battles, we did the wars, we did a few parties. Don't ha- necessarily have a great picture of him as an administrator. Is the reason he was fairly good at it? Or someone in his court that held a lot of sway was? There was some of, they had a rolling economy where they had to sort of conquer and keep conquering in order to keep the economy afloat because Philip kind of spent money as it came in and oftentimes before it came in. So I guess you could argue not the best administration. However, he was also big on 
restructuring the economy, restructuring his society. You know, he moved his population about, tried to intermingle them, get his people away from agrarian, more city dwelling. But in addition to these administrative works drawing on his time, he also had commitment to allies like those in Thessaly. So much like 355 BCE, 354 BCE, pretty empty to us aside from the siege of Methany, which stretched between the two years. We do know that Philip and his army spent a lot of time in Thessaly in 355 BCE. The Thessalians were people quite like the Macedonians in a lot of ways. For one, fondness for drinking. For another, fondness of fighting. And some have argued that this these shared commonalities helped bring many noble Thessalians into Philip's companions. They're like, hey, it's this guy's rough and rowdy, we're rough and rowdy. Might as well join him. He's going to make us rich. We don't necessarily have a reason for Philip being in Thessaly at this time. Specifically, it is very possible his allies in the region had asked him to intervene in the semi-permanent struggle between Ferrai and Larissa. We do know that he spent the early parts of 353 BCE conquering Greek coastal cities in the region, pushing towards the Dardanelles Strait and the Gallipoli Peninsula. We also know that eventually his ally Larissa called on him for aid, and even though he was 500 miles away at the time, he responded and marched his way over there pretty quickly, and this provided him yet another opportunity to outwit the Athenians. He headed to his allies very quickly, right, obviously, and the quickest way for him to do that because he was so far away was by ship. But he didn't have the naval capacity to have like a face-to-face showdown with Athens, and That's probably why he was always so lenient in his dealings with Athens. He probably wanted to have them as an ally and eventually incorporate their fleet into his, perhaps. But so what he did to avoid this, he sent his fastest ships, which he had crewed by his best sailors, sends them ahead of the main force. And the Athenians take the bait and sail out to capture these ships. But these ships are too fast, and so the Athenians circle around, try to capture the rest of the forces, but they were too far out to sea to capture the rest of Philip's men, and he's able to just sneak right on by them. Not a great look for the Athenians, outwitted on their own favorite element. Philip's basically got him right where he wants him. He's got him seeing ghosts out there. So our guys in Thessaly intervening in the struggle between Larissa and Ferrey. But as luck would have it, this ongoing, evergreen struggle had been absorbed into a wider struggle impacting the Greek world, the Third Sacred War. So some scholars have argued that this was sort of part of Philip's grand scheme. And I think I might have alluded to this last time in the last episode as well. But the reality here is that Philip and Macedonia had a long-standing relationship with the leading families of Larissa. And Philip was married to a daughter from one of these families as well. So failing to answer a call to aid them would have reflected quite badly on him. And it could have led to the loss of a key ally. So the Third Sacred War is a bit of a mess, and we got a lot to do, so I'm not going to give you a great overview of it, but I am going to give you a little one. The condensed version, super, super condensed, is that the Oracle of Delphi is at the center of this. The Oracle of Delphi wasn't near a strong city, and so had been overseen by the Amphitheonic Council. A council consisted of 12 members with two votes each, and these were the 12 poli near the oracle. And so that's the original intent. Over time, this would change as political realities in ancient Greece demanded. 
So by the time of the Third Sacred War, the Thebans and Boeotians were part of this council. The Thessalians, the Athenians, had a vote as part of the Ionian delegation, and I believe the and the Spartans were a member as well. So the Thebans emerge as the predominant power in Greece, and they are pretty successful in using their influence in the council, more successful than other powers had been before them, and they managed to impose a fine on Sparta for the illegal seizure of a Theban citadel. Phocis, a smaller city-state, also a long-term rival of Thebes, though, they also catch a fine for illegally cultivating holy lands. 356 BCE, both fines were doubled because they had been ignored, and eventually an army from Phocis, led by Philomelus, seizes the oracle at Delphi and occupies the city. So Phocis technically did have a very old claim to the city, and this was not necessarily, strictly speaking, an illegal move by them. But it was not, strictly speaking, legal either. And so Sparta and Athens, they joined them. They're like, this move's totally legit. Back them as an ally. And this was mostly to check Theban growing power. You know, they're like, Phocis, hey, go to war with these guys for us. Maybe humble them a bit so we can get our shit together and rise back up. Thebes and the Amphitheonic Council vote in 355 BCE to declare a sacred war against Phocis for seizing the oracle. So the Phocians and Philomelus, you know, not a lot of people. They begin to use the riches in Delphi, seize them. There's a lot of various old artifacts, other precious sacrifices that come over the year from people seeking, you know, the council and the prophecies of the oracle there. And so the Phocians seize these resources, start hiring out mercenaries. Eventually, over time, they would have to pay double the going rate to get people to keep fighting for them. And again, this move kind of sketchy, but not without precedent in the ancient world. Other oracles, including other oracles and temples had been like raided before as a loan to pay for mercenaries in time of war. But because of how sacred the oracle at Delphi was, I think it was a little bit different. Anyway, 354 BCE, Philomelus defeats but then loses to a mixed force of Thebans, Boeotians, and Locrians. And then Philomelus kills himself. Gone. And the thinking goes, you know, Thebans are like problem solved. They send their best general, Pimenes, who was the Theban who acted as Philip's guardian when he was a hostage in the city, sends them to Persia to, like, they're like, here, let's loan out our best general and our best troops right after in, in the middle of a war. No big deal. What the Phocians did is they elected a new general, a man by the name of Onomarchus, and they kept using the Delphic funds to hire ever more mercenaries. So Onomarchus would prove much more successful than Philomelus, and in 353 BCE, he leads his forces on the attack. They're on the offensive out here, right? Thebes is weakened because they had sent their best forces away, and Phocis actually lay between Thebes and their allies in Thessaly, which was the Aeans. So that sort of hampered their allies. So they, you know, they can't get to each other, can't loop up, link up to take down Phocis, the Phocians. Philip is at war with Athens. He's allied with Thebes. He is allied with the Larissans, who are at war with the Phoreans, who are allied with Phocis. Athens is allied with Phocis. So sort of, you know, tangled web 
brings him into this sacred war. And basically it was inevitable and not some grand master planning master stroke by him. Philip's first dealing with the armies of Phocis come in 353 BCE. Reason is just dates are years here is because we don't have a lot of great details about Philip. So Philip and his Larissan allies, Lursa is like sort of a lead collection of leading Thessalians. They're against the Foray, Thessalians, confusing. Foray with Phocis, PP, right? Larissa with Philip. Anyway, so Philip and his Larissan allies, they're pressing Foray. You know, they're about to fuck it up. They turn to Anamarcus, so they send us some help. He sends a force of 7,000 under the command of his brother, Phalus. But this was routed pretty easily by Philip and his Thessalian homies. Anamarchus then marches on Philip himself with the majority of his forces here. Don't have a ton of details, as always. But what does become apparent is that not only did Anamarchus inflict two defeats on Philip, who had hitherto been unbeaten, he also outsmarted the famously tricky Macedonian king. Which was a big deal because like one of the things of his mystique is how great of a schemer, how great of a tactician he was. So that's a pretty tough loss for Philip. So what happened is Anamarchus deploys his hoplites in front of a crescent-shaped mountain with a crescent, you know, got a nice crescent dome on top and concealed up on the top of the mountain were catapults. The forces were about to meet and the Phocians seemingly broke and they began retreating and fleeing from the Macedonians and the Salians into the lower slopes of the mountains. This was something that would happen from time to time, like hoplite in ancient warfare in general was so catastrophic that sometimes sides would just break before it happened. Philip's forces follow the fleeing men into the uh, mountains and their sort of their tight formation becomes ragged, at which point, you know, the phalanx isn't very effective when it's all ragged like that. And then once they've reached distance, the catapults open fire on them which further destroys the formations. And so, you know, they're ratted. Or they're routed. They're rattled. They're all scattered about. And then the Phocians turn around, charge, absolutely crush the Macedonians and their allies. Many of them broke and retreated. Some fled and abandoned their cane all together, just fleeing all the way back to Macedonia. But others rallied around the cane and they beat a slightly more, more dignified retreat to Macedonia. Now, this was a huge problem for Philip. He had finally faced a large Greek hoplite army in battle, and he had decisively and conclusively been defeated and outsmarted. So Philip attempts to spin the defeat. He says, I wasn't retreating. I went backwards like a ram preparing to charge. But his men for once, because, you know, he has these famous oratory skills. He hyped them up before the battle with the Illyrians when he first took command. But for once, his men aren't buying what they were selling, right? They're like, no way. They were mad at him, blamed him for walking them into an ambush. And what's more is the Greeks, like the Athenians, they're p- fired up, confident once again in their abilities to defeat Philip. The myth of his unbeatability, it shattered some of the conquered people, you know, the uh, Illyrians, Paeonians, they're getting a little big in their britches, they're pretty fired up by this too. So this was a dangerous time, but fortunately for him and Alexander, this would be the last time his reign would prove so delicate. Not only is Philip embarrassed by this defeat, obviously, he needs to 
save face, reestablish himself, restore the confidence of his army, restore the confidence of his army in him. And so he does himself a little think. He's like, how am I going to do this? Rebranding. Necessary. So, following his defeat in 353 BCE, he regroups, regathers. He has a very strong force and marches in 352 BCE with no fewer than 20,000 infantry and 3,000 cavalry of combined Macedonian and Thessalian troops. He meets Anamarchus, who had been busy racking up at least one other major victory since he'd last seen Philip. Both sides had a few advantages over the other when they meet again. Philip's troops, they have more cavalry. It was a pretty good region for their use. But it was still thought that in this battle, the infantry is what told. Meanwhile, Anamarchus's men were battle-hardened, as were Philip's. But the Phocian forces had the memory of routing Philip's men, while Philip's men had that same memory of suffering a humiliating defeat. However, if you hearken back to about 30 seconds ago, when I mentioned that Philip gave himself a little rebrand, this time, Philip and his men were not fighting for themselves or even their allies in Thessaly. They were fighting for the great god Apollo himself, because the Delphic Oracle belonged to Apollo. The Delphic Oracle was being desecrated by the Phocians. So that meant this was a holy war for the honor of Apollo, and Philip and his men had styled themselves as the Avengers of Apollo and adorned themselves with wreaths of laurel, a sacred symbol, elevating themselves beyond allies of Thebes, beyond mere soldiers in a grander war, but as two holy warriors. So we have conflicting reports about the battle, as always, but what becomes clear is that Philip won, obviously. Justin reports that at the sight of these laurels, some in the Phocian ranks were compelled to flee because, you know, the implication. Diodorus, meanwhile, reports that after a tough battle, which Philip won largely due to the credit of the Thessalian cavalry, the Phocian army collapsed and retreated towards a beach and a fleet of Athenian ships in clear sight offshore. Many attempted to flee to these ships, stripping down their armor and swimming, but most of those who attempted that drowned or were struck by missiles. Not, you know, literal missiles, just like projectile stuff. All told, 6,000 of the Phocian forces died, another 3,000 were taken prisoner, and Diodorus claims that about 3,000, like those prisoners were drowned by Philip and his men for their sacrilege against Apollo. Now, some modern, modern historians, not a fan of that claim, doesn't really make sense. You know, ancient warfare was pretty brutal, and the sacred war even more so. But, you know, drowning 3,000 men, pretty difficult to do. It is thought maybe they were driven off a cliff. Um, maybe they were killed and then thrown into the sea after. But regardless of any of this, Philip was decisively victorious against the Phocians, proving that his tactics and phalanx units were more than capable of defeating a large Greek hoplite army. Anamarchus was one of those who had drowned trying to swim out to the Athenians, and his body was retrieved from the surf and crucified. For much of the remaining summer, Philip remained in Thessaly, in Thessaly, consolidating and increasing his victories and gains, forced the Phraeans, the Salians, against his Lurus and allies to capitulate. 
This may have been the point when he gains the title of Archon from the Thessalians. Sources aren't clear exactly when that happened, but the title made him the supreme war leader and magistrate of Thessaly. However, he had dallied too long in Thessaly to decisively end the sacred war here. The Phocians regrouped with the help of their allies, and they began campaigning in Boeotia against Thebes, and he was blocked from, from entering mainland Greece by a midst force at Thermopylae and instead turns his intentions and ambitions to Thrace. At this point, skipping around again, a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about, like a lot of the stuff I'm skipping over that we know about, will be covered in more detail in the Alexander the Air episode. Okay, so we don't know what he was up to in 351 and 350 BCE, so that makes things pretty easy. But if we are to believe Demosthenes, he had some asides mentioning that Philip was in Illyria at this time. It also seems like Epirus, homeland of Olympias, started causing trouble, maybe trying to reassert themselves, reassert their independence from Macedon, even though they were independent from Macedon. Anyway, Philip marched in and seized Olympias's younger brother, who was also named Alexander as a war-hostage. This is the period in which Demosthenes rises up. Demosthenes is a famous Athenian orator, famous for railing against Philip on a series of orations in the Athenian assembly that survived and were sort of copied by Cicero in his diatribes against Mark Antony. I would argue, probably too severely, that Demosthenes was an idiot and ultimately led his people into war that they could not win and provoked repeatedly an enemy they didn't need to. So yeah, there is that. And he also unfairly provides a lot of our sources for this period. So what are you going to do? But a lot of his speeches are railing against Philip. He's this great enemy of Athens. He must be defeated. War with him is inevitable. Let's do it now. Like He has to be stopped before he gets too powerful. He's like, we beat the we're the men who beat back Persians, Greece, let's go, like, who is this northern barbarian compared to us? Um, and he spoke for the Athenians who resented their loss of power and prestige in recent years. He framed this as, like, a life or death struggle against Philip, who, for his part, kind of seemed like he would prefer Athens as an ally, otherwise there was kind of a rival amongst many, and he didn't really have nearly the blood feud with them, or at least that Demosthenes had for him. I had hoped originally to spend more time. I was thinking about giving a Demosthenes' own little episode. Which is like, but, you know, what are you going to do? 349 BCE, Philip goes to war with the Chalcidian League, which was a confederation of Poli in the northeastern Greece. Athens sent some troops to aid their allies in that region, which enabled the, you know, the allies to raid against Philip. Sort of in some of the Polian communities that defected to him, they were not able to send a force into Macedonia proper or really threaten Philip. The Athenians end up recalling their men and then send a, a smaller force in 348 BCE when the campaigning season resumes and Philip returns to launch like, a new series against the Chalcidians. And so he takes Olynthus and saps the city, destroys it, survivors are sold into slavery, and the Chalcidian lead as a whole is abolished. Philip kept any Athenians that were captured alive as captives and sent a message to the Athenians claiming to want peace. 
Athens at this point sends envoys all around Greece trying to form a united coalition against Macedonia, but finds no takers. Again, we have hazy reports of what was going on in 348 and 347 BCE besides the Olynthus stuff, but he may have been campaigning in Thrace once again. We do know that the Sacred War had kept trucking along, exhausting all its participants. And now it seems, you know, 347, Philip's like, let me put an end to this. Though it may have been that the Thessalians and Boeotians begged Philip to intervene. You know, the Thebans got involved. They're like, hey, man, we need your help. We got to put a stop to this. We're tired. We're tired. So in 346 BCE, he marches south. Again, Athens, Sparta, and other allies of forces send forces, send troops to Thermopylae to block the path. However, this time, they're unable to reach the path in time as a power struggle in Phocis had that out of vogue. And so Philip, or the Phocians prevent their allies from reaching the path in time. Philip could enter Greece unchallenged. At which point, seeing that Philip could land a major force in Greece, the Athenians decide maybe peace with this guy is not that bad of an idea. So they send envoys led by Philocrates, who had been the one like sort of opposite Demosthenes, like, hey man, let's maybe just go to peace with this guy who keeps telling us he wants to be our ally. And then also, Demosthenes is one of the delegates, as is his rival, Eschines. The ambassadors were very well well received. They were treated very well. All gave just, you know, great speeches, probably pretty much like gassing up the team being like, what up? Here's our grievances. You're pretty great. Mosthenes may have stumbled over his, but that account is from Eschines, so who's to say? Basically, Philip returns them. You know, he's like, let me have a think about this. He uh, comes back the next day, addresses all of their points, and he's like, I have more thinking to do. I'm going to go deal with a problem in Thrace. Don't worry about it. Won't do anything against you. But, yeah, I'm going to send my boy Parmenio down to be an ambassador in Athens. He'll negotiate this with you in the meantime. I'm going to be in Thrace. So, Philip keeps campaigning. They keep negotiating this peace between them. Demosthenes is a key contributor in the two-day peace debate that the Athenians have in their assembly. Demosthenes is a key reason that this passes and the peace with Philocrates as it became, or, and the peace of Philocrates as it came to be known was approved. Immediately, pretty much, he starts to distance himself from this, but once it's ratified in the assembly, the Athenians return to Pella only to find Philip still in Thrace campaigning, and also a bunch of other Greek poli representatives are there, including the Phocians, Thebans, and Spartans. So Philip is able to sort of play them against one another, get each offering their best, negotiating little deals with each of them, and ultimately has a pretty favorable piece with Athens, the piece of Philocrates, which was designed to be a forever lasting peace. They wouldn't go to war with one another, they would be allies to one another, and both sides would keep their current gains without acting against the other, basically, which is why he kept delaying and campaigning while the peace was being negotiated. Ultimately, our takeaway is that in 346 BCE, Philip is able to march unopposed into Greece. 
The Phocian commander and his forces are allowed to leave peacefully. Philip occupies Phocis and convenes the Amphitheonid Council to decide what the punishment should be. Phocis and all its cities are destroyed, except for one community which had opposed the seizure of Delphi. Reparations were to be made to the Delphid Oracle, and the citizens of the destroyed areas were resettled in smaller communities with Theban and Macedonian garrisons in the region, which was pretty light, all things considered. The allies of Phocis weren't even punished. The Macedonians received the two votes that Phocis had once held on the Amphitheonid Council, and they were given the Athenians' priority in visiting the Delphid Oracle. Demosthenes is bad up to his old tricks. He pretty much immediately starts jawing about Philip again, letting everybody know war with this guy is inevitable, and he can invade at any time now that we let him in, which was, you know, Demosthenes' idea, basically. This is probably when Philip started some of those grand resettlements and restructuring of the Macedonians and their newly gotten gains, you know, like trading these cities, moving people, the populations about, getting them into cities out of the herding constantly, all that good stuff. 345 BCE was spent in wars against the Illyrians. Uh, he also at some point around 342 BCE deposes the king of, of Epirus and puts his brother-in-law Alexander of Epirus on the throne. Epirus was technically an ally of Macedonia, but really Philip's the one, you know, he's calling the shots. They're a junior ally, junior partnership deal. He also restructured the, the, the Salian lead around this time. So really, it's in this period after ending the Sacred War. After ending the, sa- the Third Sacred War, when everyone else is exhausted and war-weary, we- war that Philip starts flexing his statesmen and political muscles and restructuring all these new regions that he's been working away at for years. Philip is once again busy in Thrace for the next few years. Also has a pair of failed sieges against Byzantium and Perinthus, what to antagonize the Greeks, but he abandons both in 340 BCE. In 339 BCE, he campaigns against the Scythians, may have gained some major booty in the form of wheat, only for that to be captured by the Triboli, which will be an issue that will come up again in the Alexander episode. But the main takeaway from all of this is that Philip's actions after the peace of Philotrates were deemed by Demosthenes and those like him in Athens to be so provocative that by 339 BCE, the Athenians and Philip are at war once again. Philip is able to march into Greece by virtue of yet another sacred war, this time because Amphissa is cultivating sacred lands. And to make a long story short, his actions eventually find both Athens and Thebes allied against him. So he's at war with both Thebes and Athens, the two strongest city-states in Greece at this time. Thebes is the strongest in recent memory, humbled and defeated the Spartans twice, who had hitherto been like this undefeated, unbeatable machine. And so combined with Athens, that's nothing to sneeze at. You know, that's something to be treated with tear. And so the early engagements in 339 and 338 BCE, they're minor skirmishes. By the summer of 338 BCE, Philip's allies had arrived. They'd been a little reluctant to get involved before this. So now he has a force of about 30,000 infantry and 2,000 cavalry. Philip is able to trick his way into capturing and occupying Amphissa, 
which was sort of, you know, like the stated reason for the war, but at this point, things are out of hand. He was committed to avoiding the Thebans, who were pretty insistent on meeting him on a field of their choosing. They were reluctant to give him, like, a major battle otherwise. And the reason Philip is so reluctant to, like, just fight them anywhere, anytime, is because a defeat suffered against him in Greece would be at such a large scale, could doom everything he's gained. Eventually, in August of 338 BCE, peace terms from all sides were rejected, and a large pitched battle was fought between Philip and the allied forces of Thebes and Athens, along with some mercenaries and other allies, at Chironia. The Athenians contributed 10,000 men, and the Thebans probably more than that, including their sacred band, which is stylized as 300 lovers, so 150 couples of of male Theban lovers. More on that in the Alexander the Air episode. But, so the sacred band holding the middle of the formation, and we're going to break down the whole battle in the Alexander the Air episode because Alexander plays a key part in this battle. But anyway, the forces of the Greeks were probably around the same size as those of Philip, maybe slightly outnumbering him in the 30 to 35,000 range of infantry with another two to 3,000 in cavalry forces, while Philip had about 30,000 and then 3,000 cavalry. Now, like I said, greater details on this next episode because Philip was positioned on the left with the Macedonian cavalry. But for what we need now, Philip outsmarted the Greeks. He led a charge in the center, I believe, that allowed he drew the Greeks off balance so that a hole in their line opened up and then pretended to retreat, drawing the forces facing him directly away from the remainder of the troops. And then Alexander and the left side rode in. Philip's men, so well drilled, about face turned. At this point, the route is on. They're killing everybody. And Mosthenes was actually amongst those in the Greek ranks, and he was amongst those who fled the field. So the Thebans and Athenians were routed, the Greek or the and the sacred band all died on the field, apparently. Greek independence at this point virtually ceases to exist. This was the largest battle of Philip's career. It was a resounding victory and a further solidification of the advantages and power of his tactics. But once again, more teleporting. So Philip creates a new lead in 338 or 337 BCE, the lead of Corinth, and he was appointed the supreme military leader of this lead or Stratagos Autocrator. The members of the League of Corinth, which included all major poli on the Greek mainland except for Sparta, and the exclusion of Sparta was sort of how Philip could claim that it was voluntary, that he wasn't ruling the Greeks, and how the Greeks in the council could claim not to be ruled. But anyway, the members of the League promised to let each other remain autonomous, you know, they had their own constitutions, they were doing their own thing largely, they also promised not to wage war against one another, and that if anyone waged war against any of them, it would be the rest of them against that member. They also made plans to invade Persia. That was sort of the stated reason for the existence of the League of Corinth, and a pan-Hellenistic invasion of Persia by all of all of the Greeks except for Sparta against the so-called barbarians to the east was planned. We don't know exactly when he decided to do this, or exactly why Philip wanted to invade Persia. We also don't know how invade his ambitions were. Did he plan to conquer the whole thing? Did he want to consolidate his gains shorter than Alexander did? We don't know. 
We should mention Isotrides, who was a Athenian philosopher, who was a big advocate of this theory that the Greeks should conquer the world and give their civilization to the uncivilized barbarians elsewhere. Uh, the Greeks were pretty fond of themselves, pretty uh, big in their britches. And so there is some thinking that that influenced Philip's thinking, and Isocrates did believe Philip was the man to lead this expedition of Greeks against the barbarians. But that's just nonsense. We know the Persians were pretty set and had a cool culture going on and were not barbarians. Anyway, also 337 BCE, not only is Philip, you know, he's gotten this huge plan to go to war, he's getting married again. And this time, you guys, he's getting married for love. But before we get all, all shots about it, he's marrying a teenager. He's around 44 years old at this time, which is not totally out of the ordinary time. Still gross. I did hear on another podcast, the Alexander Standard, that an ancient, one of our ancient sources said that his bride-to-be named Cleopatra was too young for him, which if true, nuts, that an ancient source was like, gross, good for them. Anyway, bride was named Cleopatra. She was possibly of royal of the lower Macedonian house, possibly an Ardiad, which would make him related to her on top of everything else. She was without a doubt noble. She was said to be a great beauty, and though some modern historians claim that the marriage was all for political reasons, there's reason to believe, you know, he probably was smitten with her, as unfortunate as that was. You know, guys all beat up at this point, not looking too hot. <laughs> Philip's line was relatively secure. He only had two sons. One was Alexander, his heir, and the other was Alexander's older brother, Aridaeus, who was deemed unfit to rule. So, you know, a younger wife, pure Macedonian noble stock. Could have been deemed necessary. You know, he's got a little bit of time to try to crank out a kid before he goes to war. Also, her uncle and guardian, a man by the name of Attalus, who was a... He was a fairly leading noble in the Macedonian court. He wasn't like the highest, but he was, he was, a, he was a guy, you know? He was certainly of the opinion that her heritage was important, and not just because it included him. So at the wedding of Philip and Cleopatra, we got all the typical stuff. We have great feasting. We have some awesome performances. We have spectacles. We have gifts. We have athletics going on. And of course, lots of drinking. So the women are not present for this because Macedonian noble women did not take part in the drinking parties. And Atlas rises. He has a nice toast to the newlyweds. But apparently, he was feeling himself a little bit, and maybe a little bit too much. And basically, he was like, look, look at this. A real Macedonian wife who will give you a real Macedonian heir, a legitimate heir of pure Macedonian blood. Bad manners. Bad idea. Alexander is at this party, and he hears this, and he was pissed. I mean, royally pissed. So he doesn't miss a beat, takes his cup, shuts it at Atlas, full of wine, and he's like, what's the deal? I demand an explanation. Are you calling me a bastard? Philip apparently intervenes and takes Atlas's side. And apparently he's so upset by this 
that he draws his sword and is ready to, you know, stab Alexander, apparently. But he's in his tops a little bit. He's a little drunk. And he trips. Maybe because of old war wounds. Definitely because he was drunk. He falls flat on his face. And Alexander hits him with just an unreal roast in front of everybody. He says, look, everyone. Here is the man who would cross from Europe to Asia. And he is upset in trying to cross from couch to couch. At which point, some of his boys hustled him out of the room. And he fled. He ran away. He got his mom. He said, you know what, mom? I've been drinking a little bit tonight. I'm not going to lie to you. Said some things to dad. Said something to pops. Know you guys are a little bit rocky anyway. Caused a scene at the wedding. We got to go. We got to get out of here. So they flee to Epirus. And it appears that Alexander and Philip were estranged for a little bit with some indication that Alexander may have attempted to gauge the possibility of support for a coup against him with the Illyrians, and it seems very likely that Olympias tried rousing the Epirans and her brother Alexander against Philip. If Alexander was attempting that, he was unsuccessful, and Olympias was even more unsuccessful, and fortunately, Philip and Alexander reconciled after just a short time. Some of his advisors were like, hey man, you're going to war. You can't have your heir like trying to stage a coup in your backyard. Get your house in order. So we're skipping over some details because they're going to be addressed in the Alexander the Air episode. There's another little dust up that happens a little bit later. But shortly after his wedding, we get to Philip's end. So I want to issue a trigger and content warning here for you all. Because this involves sexual assault. So if you need to hop off, here's a little break for you. We'll catch you next week. If you want to skip forward a few minutes, feel free. I'll also issue additional warnings like right right before we get into it. So you can just hit the skip 30 seconds again. If you want to skip everything though, here's your out. Yeah. So, as far as this episode is concerned, Philip's death is a classic, a classic, classic, classic. Two weddings and a funeral situation. So eventually it resolve into two weddings and many funerals. Anyway, about a year or so after his marriage to Cleopatra, Philip is back in Macedonia, this time to wed his daughter Cleopatra, which is one of the reasons it's thought that his wife Cleopatra might be an Ardiad because it's an Ardiad name. Anyway, so his daughter Cleopatra, who his sister of Alexander the Great, so Philip and Olympias have Cleopatra and Alexander the Great, Philip is married to a Cleopatra, and his daughter Cleopatra is marrying Alexander of Epirus, the boy who had been Philip's ward and now was king of Epirus and Olympias' brother. So, a lot of the same names, a lot of interrelations here. Tough. So yeah, marrying his daughter to her uncle. Pretty big honor for the king of Epirus, Alexander marrying the daughter of a big prolific king like Philip, and would further bind him and his kingdom to Philip. Anyway, at this wedding, Philip gives a, gives a big speech. He sends the Alexanders in ahead of him, and he's there standing by himself, and he's stabbed by his own bodyguard, a man by the name of Pausanias. Pausanias. And again, this is where the traitor warning comes in. Apparently, if Cleotarchus 
if Claytarchus via Diodorus is to be believed. And as we discussed, Diodorus, not the best source, but he is one of the only ones we have for this period. But yeah, things get sensational. So Pausanias definitely killed Philip. We do know that, because Aristotle tells us that, and we know we can trust Aristotle. Diodorus tells us that Philip and Pausanias were lovers, which is not too far of a stretch of the imagination that appears to be. Philip was said to be a prolific lover of both women and men. In addition to his many marriages, he had many partners outside of his marriage that were both sexes, no big deal. And yet, this Pausanias, Pausanias I, I guess, was cast aside for a younger, more handsome man by the name of Pausanias as well. The first Pausanias, Pausanias I, was allegedly super jealous and hurt by this, and so either arranged for the new Pausanias to be killed in battle, or insulted his honor, calling him a womanish coward who was basically calling him a tart, he was easy, anyone could get with him. And this so outraged the other Pausanias, that he was overzealous and died tragically, but bravely, saving the life of Philip, who had been knocked down with a broken collarbone. There is some confusion as to when to place that battle, if in, like, the exact circumstances surrounding his death, but I think we can give it to him. You know, he saved the chain after he got a broken collarbone. Good job by him. Now, Attalus, who is Cleopatra, Philip's wife, Philip's wife Cleopatra's, uncle, and guardian, he was a good friend of the Pausanias who was dead, and he's a leading general in Philip's army. He's leading the Asian expedition against Persia. He's one of those top generals over there. Good friend of the newly dead Pausanias. He's agreed for his friend, and again, last trigger warning. It's about to, about to get to it. Agreed for his friend, trigger warning if you want to step forward. Aggrieved for his friend, Attalus steams up some revenge. He plies the first Pausanias with wine at a party, and then had him beaten, and he rapes him. And the other party guests may have also participated in the rape. And then Pausanias was given to Attalus's stable hands, or mule drivers, who also took advantage of the drunken man. So, not only was... He raped, he was raped by men deemed like deeply beneath him, which was like a double insult in these days. This act was led by Attalus. Obviously incredibly reprehensible, and it served two functions. He got revenge on Pausanias in his eyes for the death of his friend, and he also sort of flaunted his newfound status and importance in the court of Philip, sort of daring him to do something about it. So Pausanias goes to the king, and demands justice. Our sources do say that Philip was disgusted by this, but he doesn't really do anything. And so, you know, Pausanias is in this court day in, day out. He has to see his attackers. He has to be mocked by his attackers and his attackers' supporters, all this horrible stuff. So Philip, in an effort to appease Pausanias, has him promoted, and he's likely one of Philip's seven royal bodyguards. Aristotle, like I said, he tells us, tells us that Pausanias killed Philip because he was insulted by Attalus, and Diodorus and Claytarchus expanded and add that sensational, hopefully embellished tale. Now, that's the stated reason for this. There are some rumors that Olympias and perhaps Alexander were involved in the murder of Philip, that maybe they offered Pausanias a kind ear, they gave him some 
ideas, fed the fire, prepared for his escape, stuff like that. Most of that seems to be sexism against Olympias. A lot of the sources, both modern and ancient, clear Alexander of the deed. And we'll get into why it probably wasn't Alexander in a later episode. The truth is, we'll never know exactly why Pausanias killed Philip and... But the truth is, we'll never know what role anyone besides Pausanias played in this assassination. We know, you know, like, plenty of reason to kill Philip. Plenty of Macedonian kings had been assassinated before, and plenty would be assassinated after Philip. Plenty of others had motives as well. King of Persia, chief among them. So the wedding occurs around a festival. Both events serve to solidify Philip's status and popularity. Guests came from all over Greece including the Athenians, who brought a promise to never support anyone who plotted against him, and a gold crown. And the other poli just as asked Hissy. There were traditional Greek festivals going on, you know, sacrifices, competitions, and all of that. A great parade. And a great parade with statues of the Olympian gods, followed by a statue of Philip. Then maybe a statue of Alexander, like sort of being like, hey, I have the favor of the gods, so does my son unclear. And then Philip himself walks in, flanked by both Alexander of Epirus and his son Alexander. The Alexanders take a seat, and there's this huge, you know, it's a glorious event celebrating the strength of his newly gained empire. We're on the eve of the expedition against Persia. Philip begins toasting the new couple, and Pausanias stabs him without any warning. Philip lies dying, his white cloak stained red, Pausanias flees. Apparently, he has a horse waiting for him, but he trips on a vine and is killed by three of Philip's other guards, sometimes alleged to be close confidants of Alexander. And that's led, you know, that's fed some of the conspiracies he was involved. That might also have just been some of his Alexander's friends who would later go on to other roles, being like, hey man, we were here all along. Pausanias was killed and then crucified for his crime. It is thought that he was understood to have acted alone and in anger at this time. So people sort of understood the motives and there wasn't thought to be this great conspiracy. It is unlikely people thought Alexander was involved because the army and the nobles wouldn't have ratified him as the new king if they did. Which is kind of weird because we see that happen other times. Anyway, more on this. We're going to cover like the episode on Alexander's ascension. Is going to be an episode, so we will get into more details on all that later. But for now, let's just eulogize Philip II of Macedon. He was the third son of a king, barely able to keep his own throne. He was a spare so far removed from the line of succession that he spent years as a political hostage in Thebes, only to be called back to serve his brother after the assassination of their elder brother, the king. This brother proceeded to launch a disastrous war, leading to the shattering of his army and the loss of half of the kingdom. The nation was so destitute that in his desperation, he couldn't afford to arm and armor the shattered remnants of his own people. It hadn't minted gold coins in years. And he turned this destitute backwater, the laughingstock of the Greek world, on the verge of becoming a conquered nation ceasing to exist, into the superpower of the ancient world uniting all of ancient Greece save Sparta under one rule and readying to invade the greatest empire they had ever seen. And he'd have done it all in 23 years 
dying at the age of 46. One of the truly great figures in history, he radically transformed world events, setting in motion what would eventually cause the collapse of the Persian Empire, a century plus of warfare, and likely the rise of the Roman Empire. But before any of that had happened, the reign of Alexander the Great would have to begin. So catch us next time when we finally get to Alexander the Great, I will be very briefly going over his full life, summarizing everything he did so that the deep dive episodes into the various aspects of him will make more sense. Anyway, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews. Just like my friend Chief Ninja, don't know who you are, dropped a nice review. Pretty cool. Much love to you. Anyway, until next time, just remember, beware of Philocrates. Bearing peace. Catch you all in the flippity flop.